Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I am Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, to kick off 2021, we are talking about workplace well-being and mental health during lockdown three. But first, before we get into that, let's start the year with some good news. Rebecca, your granddad has had his vaccine. He has, he has. Uh, so my grandpa is 94. And um, yeah, uh, last week he got the vaccine. Um, I think it's the first dose. I think he's going to go back for the second one. But yeah, um, it's it's just a really nice kind of, it just really perked everybody up when we heard that. Because uh, it's just, it's one less thing to worry about. And yeah, it's just brilliant news. It's just great news to start seeing this happening in practice. So I have one of my two grandparents has also had their vaccine and my granny is i think she's like in her early 80s so she's definitely in that vulnerable group she's been vaccinated and so has my younger brother who works in a hospital so he's obviously frontline nhs staff um so it's really actually nice to see that we are starting to see friends and family members actually getting their immunizations done um let's hope that everybody else can keep getting them done as well because it um is the way out i guess it is it is that we keep being told about so let's hope that this is maybe the one thing the government can possibly deliver in at least a semi-effective kind of a way that would be lovely that would be just it would great. be lovely it's not too much to ask for is it it's not at all and it just i don't know about you i kind of I sort of got swept up in that yes 2020 is over feeling and then kind of well it's january and it's also a January in the middle of a lockdown, in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so that kind of light of the tunnel is a long way off. But thanks to the vaccine, like it is there, there is definitely light for the first time, I think. So that's nice. Yes, I want to. But I want to. I want to think so. But I'm going to think so from inside my house and not going <laughs> out. I am just going to stay put and let's hope that we start to see that rolling out across the country and that maybe maybe in a couple of months time we are seeing something that is looking semi tiny bit closer to the world that we we do remember but i mean i'm hedging my bets i'm being cautiously optimistic i think cautious is the watchword i love how cautious we're being given how much like last year obviously you know we were kind of like oh yeah and then there's this 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 thing in china that might be an issue who knows we learned a lesson there yeah yeah don't make predictions do not make predictions so on that note should we do a podcast let's do it So 2020 was a tough year for everyone, and while we might be relieved to see the back of it, realistically we know that we've still got a long road ahead of us in battling the pandemic, especially as we settle into being in a national lockdown for the third time. And for those working in the charity sector, the past year has presented a specific set of challenges, both personally and professionally, as staff and volunteers adjust to new ways of working at the same time as demand for their organisation's services has soared. And people tend to work in the sector because they believe in their organisation's mission. So as work gets tougher and the barriers between home and the office break down, is there a risk that charities could be facing a wellbeing crisis? Well, we've heard a lot about this, especially over the last couple of months, especially as we got into the autumn last year. And so for the most recent edition of Third Sector, which is going to be hot off the press at the point at which this episode goes live, we surveyed more than 350 people working in charities or working for charities to try and explore their mental wellbeing. 
The findings were pretty stark. We found that more than 90% of respondents had experienced feelings of stress, of overwhelm or burnout as a result of their work in 2020. Surprise, surprise, I would be really surprised if anybody got through this year with their resilience completely intact. Yeah. But a massive 91% of people also said that a commitment to their charity's mission had driven them to work those longer hours or take on more work than they could actually cope with. And almost three quarters of people felt actively pushed to take on more work by their organisations. So in the magazine, our colleague Stephen Delahunty looked at what this means for the sector and the impact it's likely to have after the pandemic. But for this episode of the podcast, we wanted to look at what steps organisations can take specifically during this latest lockdown. So, Emily, you've got experience writing about HR. What important things do managers and organisations need to bear in mind at this point? So the first thing I would actually say is that if you're coming at organisational wellbeing purely from that human resources angle, you are already getting it wrong. Um, Don't think about this as an HR issue. The second thing I would say is that there are so many ways that you can get the well-being piece wrong. You can you can get it wrong far easier than you can get it right. So if you know everyone should be thinking about well-being, they should also be approaching it with care and with consideration. I think when I started working for PM 5 years ago, well-being was quite a fluffy thing. It was quite a nice to have thing. Um And I don't mean that in an abstract sense. I mean that the first thing I ever wrote for the magazine was a well-being feature. And it was all about organic vegetable crisps and standing desks and office yoga. (laughs) And we had like a little spread in the magazine where we were doing positions. And I got photographed sitting on a standing desk. And that was positioned as like practical things that organizations can do for their staff to make them feel better. Um, I think... These days, far more people do understand that well-being is not just this nice to have thing that you tack on to the end of everything else you're doing in your company. It has to be a serious commitment and it has to be a fundamental part of your organization's culture. If you want to have a strong organization, anyone in a management or a leadership position needs to be actively supporting organizational well-being. And everybody who works in your organisation, whether it is the chief executive right at the top of the company or a volunteer who is doing their work for free, they need to feel that their well-being matters. Now, what with everything that happened in 2020, we are seeing this need for strong organisational cultures more than ever, particularly in the charity sector because of those immense external pressures that so many people who work in the sector are experiencing. Fundraising is plummeting, demand is soaring. What I found especially concerning, though, was that when we ran that survey of people who work for charities, only 34% of them felt that there was enough support in their organisation to help them manage those feelings of stress, of overwork, of mental health concerns or similar, you know, well-being problems with the organisation. Okay, so you were saying about standing desks and things like that. And I suppose, you know, that that must be quite appealing on one level because it is quite a practical thing that you can do. You can give somebody a standing desk and feel like you've helped. But I mean, I'm sure you can cry at a standing desk just as effectively as you can cry sitting down, right? Um, (laughs) It's my first thought. Um, So what practically are the things organisations should be doing? Okay, so before Christmas, we actually hosted a briefing about this, a wellbeing briefing. And there were a range of fantastic speakers from the sector who gave brilliant advice around the things that you can be doing to support well-being in your organizations um it lasted for three hours so i can't condense everything that was said into this very short podcast episode but i will give a couple of top lines um 
a lot of the speakers said that particularly in these remote working environments and obviously no sign of going back to the office anytime soon, it is so important to be regularly checking in with your staff, with your teams. So as well as having those dedicated resources like trained mental health first aiders, it's also important that every manager takes an individual responsibility for taking the time to ask people how they're doing in a kind of a holistic way. I'm, you know, holistic. Nah, I'm not mad about that word, but just saying, how are you today? Like, is everything all right? Is there anything that's bothering you? It's something that sounds just so basic, but particularly when we're all as busy as we are, it's also something that can really fall through the net because it's such a small thing. Another thing that came up a lot was the need to support flexible working. Again, it's hardly surprising when you look at the ways that, for example, working parents with small children have been put on the back foot this last fortnight. Um, so making sure that people are able to work in ways that actually works around the additional demands that they have on their lives at the moment. Um, on the other hand, and I think this is just as important, um, Emma Mamo, who is the head of wellbeing and engagement at Mind, said that with all of these new processes in place, you know, the Zoom calls, the remote working platforms, all the things that we've had to adjust to because we're not in the office, it's really important that around these processes you create discipline and you create structure and you create rules and that you consolidate those. And I think that that is actually so important because I've definitely, definitely been guilty of just logging onto my computer um, to do bits of work over the weekends, even when I'm supposed to be on holiday since this pandemic started, in a way that I never would have done when we worked in an office, because an office creates that physical boundary. You leave it for the weekend, you know. Um, so I don't know about you. I hope you haven't been doing it because that means that means I have not been doing my job right. But I think it's so easy when your laptop is there to just think, oh, I'm going to have to do it on Monday anyway. Mm. So I might as well just do it now and then it's done. That kind of creep is really unhealthy it leads to these cultures of things like um presenteeism where when you're supposed to be away you're actually working and you're not getting the rest that you desperately need yeah i mean i think this is the difficulty of doing a podcast with my boss about workplace <laughs> <laughs> workplace management that uh, yeah i want to be honest but also but yeah i think it is very very easy to just kind of to just check messages and particularly because we have things like whatsapp groups which are very useful but i think it's very easy for i know us a team that you know occasionally will message each other about something completely random and then end up talking about work and thinking about work and i think mm. it is that is a tricky thing not to do. Um, and I think, as you say, I think ha not having a physical boundary of I have left the office, not my problem until tomorrow morning. It just isn't there anymore. Yeah. And then when you are in the office and when you're in working hours, actually what you also lack is the sense of community mm. and the moments of the social connection and the sort of spontaneous dialogues and the spontaneous conversations, um, which you used to have. So when you're in working hours, I think if you can find ways to create those moments of social connection, those organic moments of community, that's also really important to maintain those good relationships with people that you work with. Um, whether it is some kind of forced fun, if you can excuse that phrase around having a <laughs> quiz or having, you know, organized casual sessions, or I don't, I don't know what people do. We, we've see, got a wide range of um, things coming up that organizations have done so whether it's organized fun or just giving yourself half an hour 
every few days to talk about things that have nothing to do with work, that is also important. But do it in working hours, I think is what I would say. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that has definitely made a difference for the third sector team. Um, So as soon as we started working from home, you instigated sort of daily meetings, which does at least give the feeling that you are still part of a team working towards a common goal and not just like a a brain in a jar somewhere. Um, I I saw a tweet recently that said, I don't have a job anymore. I just have a computer that every so often tells me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think that like staying in touch with your colleagues does help stop that sensation taking hold and yeah we've been having kind of cups of tea um and kind of i've been having random sort of water cooler chats with andy ricketts who's our news editor where we largely just have a phone call and sometimes we pretend it's about work and sometimes we just talk about marvel and star wars for a bit and then we go back to being productive and i think we probably are more productive for having had those moments of connection as well Absolutely. Yes, Andy and I kind of, we didn't exactly co-watch The Mandalorian, but we watched The Mandalorian in parallel. So once a week, we'd always have a debrief on the latest episode of that. And it it's really nice, actually. And I think similarly, you know, getting cups of tea, having coffee breaks with people. It's just a really nice way to decompress, even though it does mean more time on the Zoom, you know. It's uh, important to try and have those moments in ways that work for you. Absolutely. Um, So clearly, this isn't our first lockdown. We've all had a bit of practice at this point. We are lockdown veterans. Uh, So I put out a shout out on Twitter, just asking people what their organisations have done for them during previous lockdowns, what had worked, what hadn't. And uh, so these were some of the responses I got. Um, So um, Ed Mayo at Pilot Light um, said that uh, they had helped to, from the top, the board had helped to give a sense of safety over the lockdowns. Uh, And they'd given a commitment to no job losses which uh, obviously is not a position that every organization is in so you know i think if you can if you can do that and if you're in a position where you're not going to have job losses saying that to your staff is important but yeah obviously that is not the the case for everybody but i think that that kind of communication is important Uh, so over at pause uh, claire laxton told me that they have given everyone the last day of the month off like for free not counting as part of their annual leave as a rest and recharge day um that sounds so good i love that it does, doesn't it? That sounds really, really nice just to kind of, yeah, um, to have something to work towards as well. Like it's the end of the month, like that, that feels really lovely. Um, and they also do a quiz every Friday afternoon, um, which I kind of, I feel like that can be fun. I don't know about you. I, I definitely got quiz overload in the first lockdown. I think it's about having the option there for people to um, jump in on if they want to. Yeah. Uh, And she was saying they did try to recreate some of the office chatter uh, where they kind of had open teams meeting at lunch times where people dipped in and out. And and she said, oh, it was good, but it sort of petered out. So I think, yeah, I think keeping it flexible can be quite effective there. Um, And responsive. If, if, If you try something, if you tried something in the first lockdown and it worked and if you've tried it in lockdown two or lockdown three and it hasn't worked, don't keep driving your energies into something that's not working anymore. So I think that responsive piece is, is important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Wanda Wiporska um, uh, pointed out that it was uh, worth a shout out to the Tudor Trust. Uh, so they're a grant giving organisation, which apparently gave hundreds of grants to grantees to spend on staff well-being, which I think is really important to recognise that actually there may be a cost to this and that if funders can be helping with that, that's really good. Absolutely. Yes. Big shout out to the Tudor Trust because a lot of organisations don't feel They have the resources to invest in well-being. Um, Research from the Small Charities Coalition, which came out in November last year, found that nine in ten small charities don't think they have access to sufficient mental health support for their staff and their volunteers. 
that's definitely a worry. It came up in the uh, feature as well. But if you don't have those funds immediately available, I think it's really important to say that doesn't mean that there is nothing meaningful that you can do as an organisation. Um, speaking at the wellbeing briefing in December, Ama Afrifa Chi, who is the head of people, wellbeing and equity at Mental Health First Aid England, said that a lot of the time people do think that solving wellbeing problems means basically just chucking money at them. Actually, she said the most important thing that people can give is their time. Um, so we come back again to that piece of checking in regularly with colleagues and creating spaces where people feel that they can both give support and seek support. Um, and even just if, you know, we're all so busy at the moment, but even taking 10 minutes to do that once a week can make a huge difference to the culture in your organisation. And as well as giving time at the moment, there are also a huge wealth of free resources out there because of the pandemic. A lot of organisations have supplied toolkits and guides and all sorts. So Mind Charity published free resources, including a guide to developing organisational support for staff during COVID. Um, Mental Health at Work has toolkits and the toolkits cover everything from supporting key and essential workers. So that could be those frontline staff who are out there tackling feelings of isolation when you're working at home to building anti-racist workplaces. The City Mental Health Alliance just published a free toolkit that provides practical guidance for businesses on how to support the positive well-being of black people and people of colour who work in their organisations. Now, given the volume of direct and vicarious trauma that black people and people of colour experienced last year, I think it is just so important as well that we are seeing those targeted initiatives and support for those groups instead of just blanket solutions across the board. And that was something that um, uh, Poppy Jammin at the City Mental Health Alliance brought to our attention on Twitter. Um, and yeah, looking back at some of the other tweets that we got, uh, we had an interesting one from Sonia Skeets, who is the chief executive of Freedom From Torture. And she was saying that um, as a torture rehabilitation centre, they take a trauma-informed approach to well-being, which she sort of said is too hard to unpack in a tweet. And, I'm, you know, to be honest, I think it's probably a little too hard to unpack in a single podcast. But the kind of Sparks Notes version of that... Um, of a trauma-informed approach is that it's an approach which takes into account things like safety, things like um, trustworthiness and transparency within the organisation as a whole, so people feel they can sort of trust people where they have issues. Um, peer support, uh, as well as it kind of being top-down, the idea of collaboration and mutuality and the empowerment of people who are experiencing the trauma or people who are experiencing issues with their uh, mental well-being, and that it takes into account any kind of cultural, historical and gender issues that might be going on there that might be affecting people's well-being so that's kind of roughly where they're coming from um, so some of the other work that freedom from torture said that uh, they've been doing on the well-being is kind of just having a recurring focus on well-being in staff meetings and other sorts of meetings um, practical well-being tips for home workers that are kind of that they're kind of giving out and making sure that workers have access to uh, regular well-being staff surveys um, I feel like everybody in the sector is probably a little bit surveyed to death right now but at the same time it, I think it is helpful you know to be constantly giving that feedback and giving a picture of where you are um, and uh, they've kind of crowdsourced ideas from staffs and, and things like desk stretches trial fitness sessions that sort of thing is what's come out of that um, and they're just saying that ha kind of um, inevitably having a supportive line management has to be at the heart of their framework so uh, Mark Russell at the Children's Society was saying they've given staff three switch-off days. Uh, they've encouraged meeting-free Friday afternoons. Uh, and they've had a kind of a Children's Society code encouraging time away from screens in daylight to get fresh air. And I think that is something that's been different in this lockdown versus in April when the weather was lovely. And, it, you know, at least you could go out in the evening 
uh, and get a bit of sunshine. Obviously, it's darker now at nights. So kind of having that, you know, if you need to work a bit later so that you can be out in the daytime and actually see some daylight or just switch off and go out and have some daylight that that. That is really, really important. Uh, So Nicholas Smith, who's at the Lloyds Bank Foundation for England and Wales, um, he says rather lovely, he says they've been superstars or the operations team have been superstars, which I think is really nice. Um, So they've had mental health webinars. They've had workspace assessments. They've had access to Headspace, which is kind of uh, an app where you can mindfulness and meditation. Yes. Yeah. Um, They've kind of had handwritten cards from people. They've had Netflix parties, book clubs. So again, like that conversation about you and Andy and the Mandalorian, Mm. Um, like having something to share with colleagues I think is is a, a really nice touch um, and uh, they've kind of had well-being time put in their calendars every time from 12 until 2 and I sort of said well what does what does that well-being time mean uh, to which he said it's that they don't schedule any meetings they have a proper lunch break they make the most of the daylight um, they kind of have you know activities like chair yoga step challenges a cocktail making evening which sounds good um, and somebody else from Lloyds Bank Foundation jumped in at that point and said the handwritten cards um, and the walking competitions and the Netflix parties were a lifesaver. So obviously that's, that's clearly really having an impact there. I did also get a DM from someone who obviously is going to re- remain anonymous, who actually told me that they uh, left their job during uh, the last lockdown, um, partly because of how little support or apparent care their employer had for their well-being. So it really does make a difference in terms of the staff that are, you're going to keep in your organisation. Uh, they've said now there's a happy ending to that. They've said they've started a new job where the difference is massive and they've had so much support and they feel like their manager genuinely cares. So that's good to know. Um, so yeah so looking at all those kind of tweets that we've had some of the common themes seem to be around connection and chatting and sort of not just work Um, but another theme that's come up is taking the time out to rest and take a break Um, and I think there's also something there about tangible things someone that uh, tweeted me said that they'd had um, kind of care packages well-being packages sent to their home and it had been things like teas chocolates um and we've had a few of those kind of things. I think we've had pizza a couple of times. Thank you to uh, Emily and uh, our previous business manager, Andy Hillier, for that. And um, I think that does make a difference because besides being kind of, it's nice to have things like tea and chocolate, um, having something physically sent to your home is really nice when we're all so isolated. Something that somebody has taken the time to send to you, something tangible that you can hold in your hands. I think that's been surprisingly powerful. Tangible things are really nice. And just to be clear that I don't want to be down on things like desk yoga, workplace yoga. As Mm. those people who all tweeted us said, you know, those things have been really helpful. The important thing is that those run side by side with those overall, those broader supportive cultures and feeling like, you know, in a more holistic kind of a way, that well-being is being supported throughout the organisation. So not just that sense of we've organised yoga and so everybody will be fine because that's enough. We've kind of checked off that well-being piece now. And I think that is the thing with some of the language around well-being and some of the ways that we talk about it. That mm. Like holistic earlier, you kind of blinked at that because it's kind of been used to sort of mean something a little bit alternative and airy-fairy. But if you look at the word, it means looking at the whole thing yeah looking right. you know, taking a whole approach which i think is really important you know things like mindfulness i've definitely seen criticisms of mindfulness where people are saying oh this is just learning to endure the unendurable do you know right. what i mean like just well how are you feeling maybe just put those negative thoughts away and concentrate on your breathing actually sometimes you're having negative thoughts because you're in a negative situation and we need to acknowledge that and try and deal with the wider situation um, and yeah, the same with like desk yoga, actually having a stretch can be good, but it's not going to solve everything. And acknowledging that and, and ensuring that the care and that this holistic approach goes with it, I think is is really important. I think just bouncing off that, 
ultimately one of the most important things that employers can do, and this came up a lot during the briefing, is that whenever you are putting wellbeing initiatives in place, make it a dialogue. Involve your people in any solutions that you create to wellbeing issues. Don't just sort of impose them because you think they're a good idea. You know, some people might say mindfulness doesn't work for me. And if they say that, take it on board and listen. As a great example of how you can get this wrong, I'd like to take this from Gemma Peters, who spoke at the wellbeing briefing before Christmas. And she absolutely transformed the wellbeing of Blood Cancer UK, which is the charity she leads, in just about two years. And she said, as an example of sort of poor wellbeing responses, that a lot of the time, if someone in your organisation is going through something difficult, we have this knee-jerk response of telling people, take as much time off as you need, as though that's a very, very generous thing for people to be doing. Actually, she says, the best thing to say is to say what do you need and then you listen because sometimes people do need things but those things are not necessarily as much time off as they need to be alone with their thoughts sometimes if someone is having a difficult time they actually need to be in work they need to have structure and they need to feel as though they are connecting so if, if someone says that they need to be able to work flexibly and they want to be working until, say, eight o'clock at night or something like that, I would say don't automatically shut it down because you're worried about them working longer hours, you know, and there's a work-life balance piece around there. Um, you know, let people make decisions for themselves in those healthy ways, but just, you know, be, again, constantly checking in, being responsive, saying, is this still working for you? Is there more than you need that you need from us? And by making these things a dialogue and by making them responsive, that way everybody knows that you are investing and putting your time into things that are actually working for your staff. And that's the most important thing. And I think that sense of yeah, having your feedback listened to is incredibly powerful in terms of making it clear that the organisation cares and it's not a tick box exercise. And yes, that the organisation is investing properly. Um, in where it needs to be going. Um, so the Institute of Fundraising is in the process of creating some advice for fundraisers and fundraising managers on this topic of well-being. And obviously, I think actually you can draw this out for a lot of other job roles within the third sector, not just fundraisers. Um, so this guidance is due to be published on the 26th of January, and they very kindly allowed us to have a bit of a sneak peek at it for the podcast. Um, so the key factors for well-being that, that this guidance identifies include having an open and inclusive culture that prioritises mental health and well-being, having clear policies and procedures around well-being, two-way communication, as we've discussed, having options for training and professional development, um, which mm. uh, I thought was an interesting one, um, equipping leaders with management skills so that they don't feel out of their depth. Very important. Um, and protecting yeah. fundraisers from harm. So responsible employers will take action to prevent bullying, harassment or discrimination. They'll act swiftly swiftly, strongly and decisively in response to accusations. So the advice includes some of the issues uh, you've already raised, Emily, being flexible and aware that well-being isn't one size fits all and that what might help one person is at best useless or at worst actually makes life harder for another. Um, it also includes some really helpful pointers, again, being aware of what your team's home life is like. If they've got young children, for example, 9am or 5pm meetings or deadlines may not be helpful. They also point out that it's really important for managers to exhibit and practice the behaviours they promote. So you talk there about having that time off. Um, take take as much time off as you need. The other thing I felt was that often you're, someone says that to you and you sort of think, yeah, but if I take that, is that an admission that something, you know, is, is that a problem? Is that going to create a problem further down the line? Mm-hmm. Um, or will I be looked down on for having taken that opportunity? Uh, and a stress manager will make for a stress team. So supporting your own well-being will help to support others too. And if a manager isn't taking advantage of the support available, it suggests to colleagues or to their colleagues that they shouldn't either. 
Um, and I was having this conversation with someone in a completely different context last week that often it's much easier to advocate for other people than it is to advocate for yourself. Um, so if you are struggling to take the time out or seek extra support, sometimes it can be easier to think of it as, as part of supporting your wider team by setting that example and by you know contributing to that culture. Um, the Chartered Institute of Fundraising Advice also has a couple of sections which aren't exactly advice, but I kind of think um, they're important things to bear in mind right now. Um, so the first is around this notion of resilience, which we've definitely mentioned before. Um, which is often bandied around as something that's really a really important trait for well-being. And it is useful, you know, and the, as the guidance points out, fundraisers in particular get told no a lot. They have to be able to take that because people don't always want to donate. Um, but the guidance points out that it is important for both individuals and managers not to fall into thinking that the answer to any well-being issues is just for an individual to be more resilient. Um, you know, putting the onus on individuals like that doesn't take into account the systemic, cultural or behavioural issues that can contribute to impacting on an individual's well-being. Um, you know, there are huge issues in organisations, in the sector and in the wider world. And it's a bit silly to imagine that saying just pull yourself together can solve that. So so what the guidance is saying that um, the emphasis from organisations should be more focused on responding to the issues impacting well-being not just on how an individual should be coping with them and that conversations about resilience should be held in a sensitive way, which is focused on building a constructive and enabling approach rather than treating it as being sort of the individual's problem to fix. Um, and then this last bit, I am just going to read this whole bit out because I'm sure there's going to be people across the sector who need to hear this. This is what the Chartered Institute of Fundraising Guidance says. Your connection and commitment to the cause you are raising money for is something to be proud of and to nurture, but you can't carry the weight of the whole organisation's survival and the delivery of services on your shoulders alone. Seek support and talk to your colleagues about the ways of managing your emotional connection positively and the behaviours you can adopt that can mitigate them turning into something detrimental to your work. And I think that's so important to say, we can't save the world on our own. We can't all do it. And we can't do it just by staying in the office or staying at our computers until 10 o'clock at night. Like, we can't do that. So recognising that and accepting that, I think, is really important. Well, if anybody has time and if anybody wants to hear more about creating good well-being in charities, then I really can't recommend highly enough that you go and listen to the recording of the well-being briefing. Um, it is free to listen to, and there is so much great content from a huge range of speakers in there. And you can find that at www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash wellbeing in the third sector. Otherwise, I think we just need to say good luck, don't we, to yeah. everybody else going through this lockdown. It is relentless. It does feel relentless. It's going to be a really tough few months. And um, I think we both hope that everyone who's listening is able to look out for themselves, take care of themselves and that you feel supported. Absolutely. Best of luck. So every month, we used to put together a coronavirus care package of good news. Now we're into nearly a whole year of this pandemic and we are stepping up to the weekly episodes. We thought we would keep that happy energy alive and well. So Rebecca, what good news do you have for us this week? I've got one of the better stories about Nazis to grace our computer screens in recent weeks. They're few and far between. Especially with so many of them flying around at the moment. Yes, yeah. Uh, these ones are not in the American Capitol building and that's a good thing. Um, so the Vision Foundation, which is a sight loss charity, is set to re receive as much as £500,000 from a legacy gift almost 45 years after the benefactor died. And the windfall has come about after the recovery of lost paintings seized by the Nazis in run-up to the Second World War. 
Um, so back in 1938, a woman named Irma Lowenstein Austin and her husband Oscar Lowenstein fled Vienna for London. The couple had been prominent members of the Jewish community in Vienna in the 1920s and 30s, and they had this extensive art collection, which was seized by the Nazis under the anti-Semitic Nuremberg laws. Uh, Oscar sadly died shortly after arriving in London, but Irma survived and remarried. Uh, and she spent years trying to reclaim her art collection and did manage to bring some of the pieces to London, but was hampered by the Soviet Union, which was partly responsible for controlling Vienna at the time. Irma eventually died in 1976. Uh, she had no children and left the majority of her estate to the Vision Foundation, which at the time was the Greater London Fund for the Blind. And we're not really sure why, what her connection was to this charity, but this was the charity that she chose. Um, and it included some of the paintings that she had reclaimed, which were sold on at the time, and also included a number of the paintings which were still unaccounted for. But in 2018, the charity was told that three paintings belonging to the Lowenstein collection by the Austrian artist Ferdinand Gorg Waldmuller had been found in German museums and the artworks have now been recovered. So two were sold at auction in Vienna towards the end of last year for a total sum of about £350,000. And the third is due to be auctioned this spring and could raise as much as £180,000, so bringing the total up to more than half a million pounds 45 years after this legacy was made. So isn't that just such a cool story? It's such a cool story. And all of that, that money is going to the Vision Foundation, is it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I have, I, I love this story so much. And it's also a story that leaves me with so many questions. Um, one of the questions I'm just desperate to know the answer to is why Irma chose that charity, mm. the London Fund for the Blind, as it was at the time. So is that right? Was it the London Fund for yes, the Blind? Yes, yeah. Um, a Greater London Fund for the Blind. Yeah, the Greater London Fund for the Blind at the time. I would love to know why she chose them, what that connection was, because that is a bit of a mystery. And I would also love to know how many other paintings there are out there yeah. and, and just where they are. I mean, they're yeah. probably maybe in somebody's attic or in just undiscovered in a collections all around Europe. Who knows? It's it's a brilliant story, but it's so great that this has such a positive and such a happy, happy ending. It's extraordinary. And it's so interesting that that is often when I talk to legacy fundraisers, that is one of the things that they say that often you can't, you, you almost, you know, they can they can reach out to people and try and get people to promise legacies. But at the end of the day, that, you know, their target for the year or their kind of, you know, year can be made or broken by something they have no idea about. That Somebody that has an emotional connection to their charity has never approached them you know, made this bequest in their will five years ago and has just died and suddenly they've inherited all this money and they just have no control over that and no no concept even that that person has this incredible affection for them. It's just brilliant. So, I mean, a massive congratulations, I guess, to um, the Vision Foundation and a massive thank you to Irma for yeah. her collection of extraordinary paintings and let's just hope that we can see more of these recovered in the years to come because they are raising money for an exceptionally good cause. Absolutely. Um, so we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I am Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>